First Chronicles. We appreciate having the young people in the service, but we also really, really appreciate Junior Church, too. First Chronicles chapter number 13. First Chronicles chapter number 13. We'll be reading the passage, and then let's ask the Lord's blessing on the sermon today. First Chronicles 13 and verse 1, and, and David consulted... With the captains of thousands and hundreds, and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together, from Shior of Egypt, even unto the entering, in, entering of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from kirjath Jerem. And David went up, and all Israel, to Bala, that is, to kirjath Jerem, which belonged to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God, the Lord, that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ohio drave the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might, and with singing, and with harps, and with, and with psalteries, and with timbrels, and with cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came unto the threshing floor of Triton, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Verse 10, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him. Because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. And David was displeased, because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. Wherefore that place is called Perizuzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So David brought not the ark, of God, ark home to himself, to the city of David, but carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom, in, the, in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Abedadam and all that he had. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity that we have just to look in your word and find some truth from it. I pray that we would apply them to our lives and that we would be open to whatever you have for us to learn from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. One important announcement I forgot to make is that next Sunday we're going to be having a baptism. Um, and that is a special, special, special thing because it's somebody who's received Jesus Christ as their Savior and now is willing to publicly proclaim that they're going to follow Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you to be an encouragement to that individual and to pray for people who are coming uh, and seeing that testimony of their salvation. Anyways, I forgot to mention that. I felt bad. I'll mention it again tonight. But remember that next week is going to be a baptism, another baptism, not in October, but in November. We've been having a lot of them recently, thank the Lord. First Chronicles 13, we find the story of David, the king, gathers together all, the, all of Israel, 
And in the other passage in 2 Samuel 6, it says that there's 30,000 of them. And he gathers together all Israel, and he says, you know what, if it seemed good unto you, we're going to bring the ark of God back to us. Because the ark of God, it's kind of a long story. In 1 Samuel, the ark of God, they, uh, they were losing in battle, and so they wanted to bring the ark of God into battle with them. And because the ark of God represented the presence of the Lord, and they thought that if we brought the ark of God into battle with us, that we're not going to lose the battle. Well, God said it doesn't really matter if you think if this object that represents me, if you if you want that, but you don't want to, if, but if you reject me as a person, God, it, you're not going to win. And so, of course, they didn't win. And the Philistines captured the Ark of God. The Philistines captured the Ark of God. They took it into into the into the place where they had their God set up, Dagon, and they set the Ark of Covenant there and. Uh, they left, and the next night, day they came, and Dagon fell, fell, had fell off of his pedestal on the floor, facing the Ark of the Covenant. So God was teaching the Philistines, I am superior to anything else you may produce. And the next night, so they sent him back up, and the next time, they, they came back in, and Dagon was on his face, except that his hands and his feet were broken off. And God's saying, I'm superior again. So, and then... The Ark of God, so they send it from that city. They don't want it in that city, so they send it to another city. And pestilence and all sorts of bad things was happening to the people of that city. They sent it over to this other Philistine city and this other Philistine city. And then finally they said, you know what? We don't even want it in our country. We captured it. We thought it was a great thing, but we can't control it. It's not supposed to be here. So they, put, they said, let's have a great idea. Let's put it on an ark. Let's put it on, put it on a cart with two mama cows that have calves in the barn. Let's put it on an ark, and wherever those, those cows take it is where it's supposed to be. So they did it, and those cows, with their calves in the barn that they wanted to be with, calmly walked all the way to the border of Israel with that ark of God, ark of the covenant on the car. And we know that the, that the Lord just directed those cows, because he's in control of all creation. And those cows were, were bawling for their calves, but God was in it, and they brought it to the border of Israel. The men of Israel that first received it opened it up, and the Bible said has, has had a law that you could not touch it. Only nobody could touch the Ark of the Covenant. It was sacred. And so God smote them, the men of Israel. So they sent it to a different, a different city, and then the Levites must have come and, and sanctified and taught them how you to, how to keep it. So the Ark of God is now in in Kirjath-Jerim, a city in, Jeru- in Israel, but it's not in Jerusalem where it should be. So David brought all these people together and said, let's go get it. Let's go get it. Today I want to talk about something that is often misconstrued, and it's, called, it's the word sincerity. Is it sincerity or is it sin? Sincerity. I appreciate a sincere person. If somebody's sincere, then they're genuine. They're honest. They only want to do what you want them to do or what they believe is right. There's nothing distracting them. They're honest. They're genuine. They're sincere. It's a good trait to have. But just because a person is sincere doesn't mean that they're right. Because you can be sincerely wrong. 
Ever, ever read the kid's story, Amelia Bedelia? Now, I didn't ask you if you were like old when that came out, because that, that came out in 1963, and that would really date you. But Amelia Bedelia was a book that I read as a kid, and I'm not even sure if it's around anymore. But Amelia Bedelia, you know what? She was a sincere person. She always did what somebody asked her to do. She always was wanting to obey. She always was wanting to do this and that. But she hardly ever did anything right. She said, dust the furniture. She went and got dusting powder and sprinkled it all over the place. You, make, you ask her to make a sponge cake. She would make a cake and then throw a sponge in it. Amelia Bedelia was sincere, but that doesn't mean that she was right. And it also doesn't, just because a person is sincere doesn't mean that everybody needs to act like they're right if they're wrong. Because sincerity is a nice thing to have, but sincerity has to be rooted in what? Truth. In Joshua 24, 14, Joshua tells the people, now therefore serve the Lord. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Paul in 2 Corinthians says that they, had, they were in simplicity and godless sincerity of mind, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Every time that you see sincerity in the Bible, it's coupled with truth. Because it's not good enough to be sincere. Sincerity by itself is not necessarily correct. You could even say that the President of the United States right now is sincere. But he's sincerely wrong about a lot of things. And he may be sincere when he remembers that he's President, but sincerity by itself is not right. And just because somebody sincerely believes something doesn't mean that we need to stand back and say, we don't want to offend him. Because you can be sincerely wrong. This world today wants everybody to think that as long as you're sincere and you believe and you truly believe in yourself, or whatever that means, then truly God will accept you. Well, let's look at some reasons why sincerity is wrong. In First Chronicles thirteen. And David said unto all, unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of the, our God to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Their intention... I gave you three points today. Their intention wasn't enough. Their intention wasn't enough. And you say, well, how so? Just, okay, what about verse 10? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. Your intention, David's intention to break the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem was a good intention but good intention without godly interaction will not produce godly fruit. Intention isn't enough. You know, there's people in the world today that 
they want to bring God into their lives. Wasn't that what they were doing? They were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into their lives because they wanted that. They knew they needed it back in their lives, but they neglected the fact how they were supposed to do it. And there's many people in the world today that they want to have God in their lives. They recognize they need, a God, they need something in their lives. But that doesn't mean that they're on the way to heaven. Just to want God doesn't, isn't salvation. Matthew 7 verse 21 says, Now, let's turn there real quick. I was going to quote it, and I missed the first three words. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that last day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Your intention is not good enough to get you into heaven. No matter how sincere you are, no matter how much you want Jesus Christ in your life, God in your life, if you do not do it the Bible way, if you ignore the truth but accept sincerity, it's not going to be enough. If, if God wouldn't have punished us for touching the ark, then you might have an argument in saying sincerity isn't okay. God didn't kill Uzzah because he was sincere in trying to stop the ark from falling onto the ground. But the fact is that God punished Uzzah. And Uzzah was, had a good intention. Uzzah was sincere, you could say. And overall, if somebody does not, is sincere, but they don't, but only sincere, and they just want God in their life, if that's what they're trusting in, then they're rejecting Jesus Christ. They rejected Jesus Christ here. You're saying, well, Jesus Christ didn't come on the scene until John, or Matthew, or Mark, Luke. But John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And when they chose not to read the Bible and find out from the Bible how to do it, they rejected Jesus Christ. So sincerity is not going to get you into heaven because you have to be sincere in the truth. John chapter 14 verse 6 says, I am the way. Jesus is talking. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's not, it's not Jesus plus something. It's not, it's not something that you can do. It's not Jesus plus something. It's only Jesus Christ. The problem is sincerity is self-based. Sincerity is subjective. Truth isn't. You know, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he made a very absolute statement. And nobody likes absolute statements today. But they need to be asked if they're absolutely sure that there's no absolutes. Because there are absolutes, and it's found in the Word of God. You know, even, even, our, even our, our government has, is trying to twist our laws, twist our constitution to say this is okay. Say this is okay. 
You know what? The Constitution isn't absolute. Because men, men can change it. Men can interpret it differently. Nobody can change the Word of God. They rejected Jesus Christ. And if you reject Jesus Christ and are trusting in your sincerity, like as if you're going to get to, you're going to arrive at the gates of heaven and, and say, oh, well, I know you didn't do it my way, God says, but you were sincere. You were trying. You did the best you could. You didn't know. Come on, I'll let you in. That's not what the Bible says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have to believe it. You know, the rich man, there was a story that Jesus told about rich man Lazarus. And rich man went to heaven. I mean, the rich man went to hell. Lazarus went to heaven. And at the end of the story, the rich man says to Abraham, send, send Lazarus back down to tell my family about me, about, about this place. Raise back Lazarus back to life and send him down to tell them the truth. And Abraham says, if they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither would they believe one, though he rose again from the dead. He holds the word. Moses and the prophets. That's the Bible. Above one rising again from the dead. So if you're not saved today, you need to understand that salvation is not just you wanting God in your life. Salvation is wanting God in your life and willing to do it His way. The Bible way. Nothing else that we can do besides Jesus Christ, trusting in Him alone for your salvation. But if you're saved today, if you have already accepted Jesus Christ into your life, sincerity is not enough. Intention is not enough. Sincerity by itself is not the will of God. Sincerity by itself is not the will of God because many people say, Christians say that seeking God is the will of God. Wanting God in your life. But if a person can't get saved just by seeking God, and they have to actually submit to his way of salvation, then that means a Christian, to, in order to be in the will of God, can't just be sincere. They have to submit to his way that he wants them to live. Because seeking God, in your mind, may be giving up Sundays, not going hunting, not going fishing on Sunday. When God says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And his righteousness, something that we don't talk about a lot today is righteousness. So what is the will of God? Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13 says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is it. This is it. The conclusion of the whole matter. You want to know the will of God for your life? Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. There is nothing outside of it. There is nothing excluded. Fear God. Sincerely want to obey God. But then keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And if you want to find God's will for your life, start right here. There are so many things. You can do a, a lifelong study of the, of the things that 
says that God hates in the Bible. And if God hates it, if God hated it then, you say, well, that was Old Testament law. No, if God hates something then, does God ever change? So does God, if God hates something then, does he still hate it now? Yes. That's the whole duty of man. That's the will of God. Good intention without godly interaction will not produce godly fruit. And if you're a Christian, let me remind you that when God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy, that is just as much Bible as for God so loved the world. And many times we think that we're saved and we accept Jesus Christ as our salvation, but then when it comes to the rest of the Bible, it doesn't matter. We don't believe it. Well, that's today, that's not culturally accepted. It's outdated. I think God had 2023 culture in mind when he wrote that. So that's no excuse. All of the Bible. If God wanted us to just know salvation, the Bible would be that thick. But instead he made it that thick. That's the whole duty of man. Sincerity is not enough. Intention is not enough. Intention is Sincerity with truth and obeying the truth, doing his commandments is the will of God. Well, somebody may say, well, I don't know what the Bible says. My notes are flying all over. Am I on? No, I'm not. There we go. Close to the pulpit. All right. Some people may say, well, I don't know what the Bible says. So when I get to heaven, I'm just going to plead ignorance. So first of all, their intention wasn't enough. Secondly, their ignorance wasn't excused. God, God still smote Uzzah, even though his intentions were good, to, to stop the ark from sliding. But he didn't excuse his ignorance either. Ignorance didn't stop God's judgment. Uzzah could have raised his hand and said, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to touch it. I was just trying to do the right thing. I was being sincere. But that didn't stop God's judgment from coming. And I don't know. I don't know. Saying that, I don't know. Maybe the best answer for your life and the only answer. But it doesn't mean that you no longer will receive the consequences for not knowing. I, well, I thought you preached before, even Brother Josh, that uh, you're accountable for what you know. You are. Well, do you know that you should mo- know more of the Bible? So you are accountable for what you know. The Bible says study to show thyself approved unto God. Proverbs 22, verse 3 says, the wise man, the prudent man, foreseeth evil and hideth himself. But the simple person that doesn't know anything pass on and are punished. It doesn't say the simple will pass on and because they're simple, they, they won't be punished. No, the simple pass on and are punished. It doesn't exclude you from the consequences. Hosea 4 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge... I will also reject thee. 
Nobody is going to have any excuse at God's throne. Romans 1 says that the creation, creation itself shows us. Shows us God. So that we are without excuse. Nobody is going to be able to stand before God. I don't know how some people have said, well, what about the people in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ mentioned? I don't know how that works, but the Bible says that nobody is without excuse. And if somebody, if somebody really wants to find God, God's going to somehow show himself to them little by little until they will, can understand fully. But sadly, the devil likes to compliment. The devil likes to step in and offer a false religion to sincerity. And so then people who are ignorant accept it. But ignorance is never excused. Sadly, some people are willingly ignorant, as Second Peter says. The point is, ignorance can be prevented. It wasn't excused because it could have been prevented. Here in 1 Chronicles 13, something could have been said. Verse 2, And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad into our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. Who are the priests and Levites? Priests and Levites, especially the family of Kohath, were in charge of transporting the ark. So if priests and Levites were there, there were people there who knew how to do it. Something could have been said. You know, could someone else's plea of ignorance not work because of you? Because you were that Levite who stood and never said anything while David put the ark on the cart, which was against God's law, and then moved on. Then Uzzah started to reach out his hand to touch it. Ignorance will never work, but what if, what if somebody reaches heaven and their excuse is you? They never told me. I don't know because they never told me. And God says, no. Ignorance is never excused. That person that should have told you was ignorant. They didn't say anything. Something could have been said. Something could have been read. They had the word of God. All they had to do was open it up. It was the king's job of Israel to read the Bible and to copy out his own copy of the Word of God. They had the Word of God. Ignorance is not bliss. The Bible says study. Something could have been said to prevent ignorance. Something could have been read to prevent ignorance. Something could have been led. James 1.5 says, If any of you ask of God, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. Do you think that God would have wanted to show them how to do it? 
Do you think God was standing up in heaven? Oh, I don't, I don't really care what they're doing. I might punish them for it. God wanted to be asked. If any, if any of you ask, lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Something could have been said. Something could have been read. Something could have been led. God wanted to lead them. Maybe there just was nobody in that story that felt like they could talk to God. Because the Bible also says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Someone had to be spiritual enough to pray to him and have him answer her. Them. But you know, when asking for help, it takes what? To ask for help, you have to have what? Humility. Their intention wasn't enough. Their ignorance wasn't excused. And their independence wasn't insulted. And to be honest with you, this is probably the root of everybody's problem. Their independence wasn't insulted. We love independence as Americans. We love the word independence. But because we've loved independence so much and we've forsaken Jesus Christ, God is no longer going to give us our independence. People say self-confidence is is the key to success. The Bible says in Joshua 1, 8, this book of the law, shall not depart of thy mouth. Thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Thou must observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Their independence was exalted. Self-confidence, can you show me any spot in the Bible, where God says that self-confidence is okay. Because I know, I know that according to the world's mentality, you have to have confidence in order to lead. You have to have confidence, in, you have to have self-confidence in order to be a success. But the Bible doesn't teach that. It's sure, it may work, it may be natural to depend on ourselves, but it's not biblical. Paul said in Philippians 3, uh, We have no confidence in the flesh, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, Paul said. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, that's touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, the confidence that I had, but where things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. You doubtless, I count all things but dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Mark 8 says, Whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel is the same shall save it. It's not about self-confidence. The reason why Christians are losing in their daily lives, in their struggle against sin, is not because of a lack of self-confidence. It's a lack of Christ-confidence. 
The Bible never teaches self-confidence. It teaches Christ's confidence. That's why the world is a wreck. Because the only person they can trust in, the only person they can have confidence in, is themselves. And their self is wicked in nature. The heart is deceitfully wicked and above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The difference between a Christian and an unsaved person is they have the ability to have Christ's confidence. I do what I do because of Christ. When Jesus in John 15 said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. He did not say, for without me, ye can do nothing spiritual. When it relates to spiritual things. You know, he said, for without me, you can do nothing, period. Jesus Christ is the answer to all of our problems. The problem with self-confidence and independence is it redefines what we think. It redefines what we think is, number one, sensible. Let's look at verse 4. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. It was sensible. Verse 7, and they carried the ark of God in a new cart. That was sensible too. Why would you carry something when you can put it on a wheels and let it carry it for you? Verse 9. And when they came unto the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. It's sensible. The ark is falling. Let's put our hand forth to stop it. Self-confidence redefines what we think is sensible. But God said... In rebuke of verse 4, right in the eyes of all the people, God said in Proverbs 3, verse 7, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. God also said it was wrong for them to carry on a cart. God also said it was wrong for them to touch it. The problem is, is we as people and unsaved and Christians, unsaved people don't get saved because of self-confidence, Saved people don't move on in their Christian life because they don't come to the conclusion that what makes sense to me does not matter. My opinion does not matter. When somebody gets saved, they have to come to the realization and the conclusion that you are everything I need, God. I can't do anything without you. You're the answer to life. I hope that's what you said when you got saved. I accept your gift of salvation because I can't make it to heaven on my own. But if an unsaved person has to say that, has to believe that, get saved, then a saved person needs to do that as well. And it's not getting re-saved every day. It's resubmitting yourself to Jesus Christ every day. My opinion doesn't matter. What, what makes sense to me does not matter. Because what made sense to God is obey me. He made you. Why shouldn't it make sense to him? You know, I was debating whether or not to use this illustration. I'm going to get married in 96 days. Yeah. Who's counting? I'm going to marry in 96 days. And when I'm married to my wife, soon to be wife, what if I said, 
I love you? Or what if my thought was that, you know, I love her? But what if, what if in order for her to feel loved, she had a certain criteria of what she wants me to do? What makes her feel loved the best? Now, me as a prideful man might say, well, I love her, and I'm just going to show my love to her whatever way I want. Because, that's, because her list of what, what she feels loved isn't how I express my love. It doesn't make sense to me. Massaging her feet doesn't make sense to me. I can just come home every day and show her my love. But whose opinion really matters in that relationship? If I'm trying to show her love, does my opinion of how I'm doing matter or does her opinion of how I'm doing matter? Because I'm trying to show love to her. So if she doesn't think, if she doesn't feel loved, that's my fault. Because I need to base my life off of what she thinks. So then if God, if something makes sense to God, we need to base our life off of what makes sense to God. We need to base our love for God off of what he calls love, what he calls hate. And by the way, if, if it's any, he, he calls anything less than 100% love for him, if you don't have 100% love for God, if it's anything less than that, he calls it hate. That's his mindset on it. So what makes sense to me doesn't matter. What I want to do doesn't matter. It is never right, Pastor said this before, it is never right to do wrong to the right. It is never right to do wrong to the right. But common sense, human reasoning, human understanding, human wisdom says, but you got to look at the circumstances. The ark was sliding. I put my hand forth to stop it. I'm trying to do good. My intention was good. And God says... No, it's not. The circumstances don't matter. The culture doesn't matter. There is no excuse for us. If the culture is doing something, for instance, the culture today says that sodomy is okay. And Christians are at the point where we say sodomy is absolutely, totally wicked. But you know how we got to that point? Is because when the culture said adultery is okay, then Christians said, or we're borderlining on, well, it's okay to hold hands and kiss and all that stuff before marriage. The culture doesn't define who we are. The culture does not determine what's right and what's wrong. As I said before, God knew that 2023 was going to happen when he wrote the Bible. It is not. It, we are not supposed to, okay, well, that makes sense today, and no, that doesn't make sense. And um, we, We're supposed to find out what's applicable. No, all of it's applicable. Don't let your circumstances dictate your obedience to God. Let your obedience to God change your circumstances. So, well, if, if the ark 
the circumstances. Well, the ark was tipping and Uzzah touched it. But the truth is, the ark should have never been on the cart in the first place. And so if you would change your obedience to God, then Uzzah would have never been in the position to touch the ark. Because it would have been carried on four Levite's shoulders. We are supposed to do right regardless of anything else. We have no excuse. Self-confidence redefines what we think is sensible. Self-confidence redefines what we think is serious. What if they what if they thought that it was a really serious thing? You know, this is the Ark of the Covenant. We better look through all the archives. We better we better know, know, know that we're doing the right thing. What's serious? You know, the Bible says in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, saith the Lord. Neither are your ways my ways. What about that sin that you think is a small sin? You think it's kind of just like a... Sure, it's sin, but it's not affecting my life. How does that look to God? Because while you're focused on, this isn't my sin, this is a small sin, this is my sin. God wants you to stop pointing at that and step back and point at all that. Because we are not just fighting against one sin that we think is sin, because does our opinion matter? No, it doesn't. Because God wants us to fight against all sin. That's small sin. In God's eyes, it's serious sin. You know, there's an illustration that Brother Bill uses, and it's two fish. Small sin, big sin. And you put one on top of the other, and one looks smaller than the other, and you switch around, and then it, it's reversed. But truth be told, if you stack them on top of each other, they're the same size. Is there any small sin to God? You know, it grieves me that, that people think that murder is a sin, which it is. But then when it comes to fibbing, lying, it's not so much a sin. And the problem is, is in our minds, we view murder as a big sin. Why? Because it's harder to get away with it. Why don't we view lying as the big sin? Because it's easy to get away with it. In God's eyes, it's all on the same level. You know, I heard you were talking, I think you guys were talking about Saul in Sunday school. Saul disobeyed a commandment of God. He said to go out and wipe them out, destroy the Amalekites completely. Saul obeyed the Lord's command. He said, told Samuel, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But he didn't destroy everything. He kept back some of the stuff. He didn't, he didn't destroy everything. He kept, the, he kept the king of Agag, the king of Amalekites, alive. It doesn't have to be complete rebellion. To be rebellion. Because if it's not. If it's not 100% sold out for Jesus Christ. Then what if it's 90% sold out for Jesus Christ. That's good. But what about that 10%. God wants that too. Sin is serious. You know that there is not one. Single command. In the Bible. That God has given us. 
wherewith he has not also given us the ability to do it. And we can't read the Bible and say, well, I'll try to do that. We can't read the Bible and say, I'll think about doing that. Because the Bible says, you can do it. What about, what we think about, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. What about, I can do all things through Christ. I can, I cannot sin through Christ which strengtheneth me. What's serious in your life? So it, Self-confidence redefines what you think is sensible. Self-confidence redefines what you think is serious. And self-confidence also redefines what you think is submission. Like I said before, if 10% is not given, God wants 100% of your life. Not just most of it. Not just most of it. It redefines what we think is submission. Because... God told Saul, even though Saul did most of the commandment of the Lord, God told Saul, I'm going to take away the kingdom from you. You're no longer going to be king. And it, and it wasn't complete disobedience. It was just partial. God killed Uzzah for, not, for simply not, for, and for David not looking into the book of, in the Bible, knowing what to do. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, What, knowing not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? If we lived every day like this isn't my body, if we lived with the mentality that I wonder what God can do with my life, no, it needs to be I wonder what God wants me to do with his life that he's given me. Because it's not your life. It's his life. You know, submission is not about following demands. It's about fulfilling desires. Because a demand, for somebody to follow a demand, is just like, okay, I surrender. Fulfilling desire is like, I want to do whatever you want to do. Whatever God wants you to do, that's what you need to do. Should I go to church tonight? Well, does God want you to go to church tonight? So, therefore, you need to go to church tonight. Because you know the answer to that second question. If God wants it, I need it. You know, when, when, we're, when an unsafe person, somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ solely as their personal Lord and Savior, the hardest thing to leap over is getting to the point where they understand that they need something. But how will we ever make anybody else understand that they need Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior if we don't think on a daily basis that we need Jesus Christ alone for everyday life? It's submission. It's submitting to what you want. Joyfully. We have to see our need first, though. You know... Here's an illustration here. I think it grieves me that if our opinion doesn't matter, then what we think we need doesn't matter. 
because God's opinion matters and what he thinks we need matters. It grieves me that in church, we may be listening to the preaching and then pastor gets to a certain part or to the end or to something that we don't think is needful. I don't need this. And you may not do that in person. But what about in your heart? Is there ever a time that, oh, I know pastor's preaching on this on Wednesday night. I know there's church tonight, but I don't need it. Is there everything, is there anything that God has set up that you don't need? Because self-confidence, yeah, oh yeah, you may think you need something. But it's not completely what God wants you to have. Because what you think you need doesn't matter. What God knows that we need. Or what God wants in our life matters. And when you, when you in your mind say, I don't need this. You're giving in to the very sin that is the source of all your problems. Because you may say, I don't need this because my need is this. And you put your Bible down in your mind. You're giving in to the very sin that is causing that problem right there. Because you don't think you need this stuff. And that's called P-R-I-D-E. Pride. Pride says, you may overcome your pride and say, I have a problem. But if your pride goes on and says, I have a problem, but also I have the solution. That's pride too. It has to be, Lord, I have a problem, and Lord, you are the solution to my need. People, people don't want God in their life unless they're on their deathbed. How come Christians say we only need God on Sundays? I'm not, I'm not rebelling against God because I go to church once or twice a week. I go to church, you know, I give up of my time. I'm not rebelling against God. But remember, if it's not completely sold out for him, it's partial rebellion. It's still rebellion. What do you think you need? Because whatever God wants is what you need. It needs to be our everyday need. You know, the Old Testament law was given so that we can know that we can't get to heaven on our own, but it was also given to show us that we daily need Jesus Christ in our life. We daily need forgiveness of sin. When's the last time you've said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wrong, wrong? When's the last time you've said that? Lord, I was wrong. Not saying, Lord, I was wrong, but, but I just... I. Uh, the circumstances, the culture. No, your need is to say, Lord, you're everything. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. Every day of our lives. Every day need. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but adjoining one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Church. What if we had church every day of the week? 
then according to that verse, we need to be there every day of the week. And you know what the next verse says right after that? Hebrews 10.26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. We can't just come and offer a sacrifice and it's all okay. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery in a nation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy of who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite the spirit of grace. If we sin willfully, we say, I know, I know we need this. I know I should go to church tonight. I know there's special meetings this week, but I don't need to go. I'm already going on Wednesday. If that's our attitude, and I understand if you can't come to church for physical or physical reasons or health or whatever, that's between you and God. But if you can't come to church because in your mind you say, I don't need this. That's a pride problem. For if we sin willfully after that we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifices for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and firing in a nation. And he's not talking to unsaved people. He's talking to saved people. Uzzah received judgment and firing in a nation. You say, well, God wasn't very gracious. No, God didn't smite anybody after they put the ark on the cart. It was only after Uzzah touched it. He was long-suffering. He was gracious. He was giving them some time. And I've done despite the spirit of grace. When we sin willfully, we're trotting underfoot the Son of God. And then when we're doing it despite the spirit of grace, the grace of God was not given to us so that we can keep on sinning. The grace of God was given us so that we may be saved, and after that, no more sin. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So what do you think you need? All of us can use more submission. Fulfilling God's desires, not just following his demands, or seldom following his demands. You may say, well, it's hard to do, to fulfill God's word. It's hard to obey his word. It starts with submission. We ended with submission, but that's where it starts. Not what we think is submission, but what God thinks is submission. The Bible says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Philippians also says, for it is God which worketh in you. When we submit ourselves to God and say, I don't know anything, you tell me what I should know. You let me know what I need. Then we're opening up to him and we're letting him work in us. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You know what? If you let God start working in, he'll start working out both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
It starts with submission. At the end of the chapter in Second Chronicles 13, First Chronicles 13, David says, David, it says David was afraid. And how shall I bring the ark of God to me? But that was after Uzzah died. Are you going to have to wait until God brings judgment for you to wake up and say, I need to submit to God? Not just partial submit, but every day of my life saying, Lord, I need you. I want you to do work, your perfect work in me. Whatever your Bible says, whatever your word says, that's what I'm going to do. I surrender all. And pretty soon, you know what? Sin is a problem. That example that I gave of a church member saying, I don't need this, I confess, that's probably my biggest, biggest sin in church. Because listen, I've been, I'm the pastor's son. I've heard all of his illustrations. I've heard most of his messages before. So I'm not just preaching to, to people that I think have problems and I don't have problems. Because when I say I don't need this, I'm giving it to the very thing that's causing most of my sin, my pride. Don't say I don't need this. Ask God, what do you want in my life? Because that's what I need. I know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to serve you anyway. Show me how. Their intentions weren't enough. Their ignorance wasn't exalted, excused, and their independence wasn't exalted. Sincerity, it's wonderful, but it's not, if it's not in truth, it's misplaced. Don't wait until judgment comes for you to get, for you to sell out to God. Don't wait. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for this message that you've given us. I pray, Lord, that we would be surrendered and submissive to whatever you have for us. Whatever your word says, that's what I'm going to do. Not because it makes sense to me, not because, it, not because of any other reason, but because of you. And I'm submitted to you. And whatever you want is what I want. Whatever you want is what I need. Brother, that that would be our prayer today. Bless the fellowship after the service, Lord, with the potluck. I thank you, Lord, for everyone who's here this morning. Pray, Lord, that we would be changed as a result of looking in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be dismissed.